Welcome travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. And this is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your not-so-humble guides on the quest for RPG adventures. Here at Tabletop Journeys, we are all devoted role players and storytellers at heart, and we absolutely love sharing our passion with you. On our show, we feature diverse tabletop RPG systems, demonstrating them through actual plays and breaking down the rules to provide you with tips, tools, and techniques to help you navigate them. We also love bringing the content creators behind these games into the studio to give you a peek behind the curtain with relevant and insightful interviews. Let us help you get the most out of your story, no matter what game world or system you're playing. Because detailed settings, heroic characters, diverse NPCs, and a focus on story over rules can make any campaign legendary. Here's a message from friends of the show. Do you tire of always handing out the same old plus one and plus two weapons to your martial player characters in your fifth edition games? Are the Flame Tongue and the Frostbrand making campaign after campaign just tepid and bland? Perhaps your players need some equipment from the Old Sword Repository. Now on Kickstarter, Old Sword Repository 2022 is the third book in the series. Each book is a small, digest-sized softcover with 30 or more magic items in them, mostly swords. What started in 2020 with Sword Temper prompts turned into a successful Kickstarter campaign last year, with the 2020 and 2021 books both available on DriveThruRPG. Has led to another Kickstarter this year with even more weapons with which to allow your murder hobo players to eviscerate the dungeon denizens that you put before them. With fantastic unique art from five different artists and rules for each one written by myself old sword repository 2022 promises to bring powerful weapons and treasure to your games the likes of which your players haven't seen before Welcome, everybody, to today's episode. Excited once again to be together with my illustrious co-hosts and our fantastic guest, who is making a second appearance on the show, a rarefied company, if I may say so, some people that have made more than one appearance on the show. But before we get into that and introduce him, Mr. Miller, Mr. Myers, good evening. I hope that you are doing well. It's been an interesting day, happily working on projects. Mm-hmm which is as much as I'll say on the subject, one that we're wrapping up, but a few others that I'm starting and planning my next game of Monster of the Week. Uh, I like. am rapidly falling in love with this game. I loved running it for our Patreons this month. I'm doing great. Excited to be here. Happy to be talking to Adam again. How about you, Lee Winika? 
I have been crazy, crazy busy. So much gaming stuff. I'm working on a freelance project. Can't disclose too many details on that at the moment. I have been working hard at uh, the Factions book. Um, a lot of good stuff. Uh, nearly completed with the Soul Society, uh, at least as far as first draft is concerned. I'm starting some stat blocks for the various factions that I'm specifically responsible for. Dude, I've had uh, some fun with stat blocks this week, too. Stat blocks are so much fun, but you got to do your research to know where you're at. So in prep for that, this week has had a lot of going back to my source material on the Outriders and the Soul Society. I've yep. done some additional research research on both the early Roman Legion period and the late Roman Legion period, which is the source material for the Outriders. Just really getting a feel, not so much for specifics or details, but just for a sense of the concept. I've been going through multiple sources so that I get a wide variety of feels, because whenever you talk about something about ancient Rome, you are obviously talking about a distillation of facts written probably 500 years after the events by people who have specific biases. Yep. So you have to really go to multiple sources. So if you use different sources that start from different sources, you will get a more holistic picture. And yeah. that allows me to have something that has generally not been seen in fantasy fiction and culture, even though we're all referencing the same source material. So the goal for me is to have all those things that are very unique to myself and TTJ, but yet so reminiscent, you can just feel that this is a soldier using a Spatha, Gladius, the uh, Scutum, being able to get those things, but also just having a feel for the society. Because we're dealing with factions, I want to be able to get into the culture of them. Yep. So I've been doing a lot of research on What's the baggage train people within this organization like? What were mealtimes like? What was the march like? What are the types of missions that yeah. the scouts would go on? Yeah. Those kinds of things. And I love that element of it. First of all, I'm a big fan of history in general. But specifically, now that I'm doing it for a Tabletop Journeys project, oh, oh, chef's kiss. I love this stuff the writing on my second one, which is very exciting uh, because I'm going to be doing the layout. I only have the two, which means that we are about to go ahead and enter like my favorite part of the book writing process. And that's when I get to go ahead and read what you guys have come up with and then realize, oh crap, I didn't think about mealtimes. I need to and go, go back and start filling in gaps in mine after I'm inspired by the work that you guys have done. I'm really excited about that. And and Glenn, not to not to foreshadow, I'm excited to go ahead and hear that you're working on other other projects also. There is lots of other projecting going on the team right now and some of it we haven't even announced yet or talked about. So it's, it's a, we're, we're about to go ahead and put out our fourth album and all of us are doing our solo projects too, which is kind of neat. It's a nice, nice little touch. Be clear, yeah, it's, it's going to be better than yeah. the four Kiss albums, by the way, which was honestly, <laughs> they had one song that was it. Yep. We're going to have a bunch of hits. It's yeah, going to be exactly, Tabletop you know. Journeys with this huge collection and yeah. a bunch of hit albums from our exactly. solo Exactly. I love Well, it. not to worry. Yeah. Our last book, Subclasses of the Multiverse, there were a couple of hits in it. We've got great reviews from it. Yeah. There are a lot of people that really liked that book and the content, so we're already yes. on the way. Yeah, I like it. absolutely. All right. Without any further ado, we could talk all night about ourselves, but that's not the point of tonight's episode. The point of tonight's episode is to bring back a guest that was on the show, gosh, probably close to a year ago now. I would think maybe even more than that. It may have been last year sometime. But uh, bringing on the Dungeonator himself, Mr. Adam Eason. Adam, welcome back to Tabletop Journeys. So awesome to have you back. Yeah, thanks for having me again. I really appreciate it. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about some of the new stuff that you're working on here. But before we get into our question and answer rounds here, for folks that maybe didn't catch you the first time around or aren't familiar with your work, can you describe the work that you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. I'm a writer. 
for the most part. I started a blog on Ko-Fi, coffee. I call it coffee because I think yeah. it sounds better to have the, it sounds, the coffee sounds cuter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard it both ways, depending on the show. Yeah. <laughs> and mostly focused on world building for the blog. It's been, I think, probably a couple of years now that I think about it. The very first blog kind of series that I did was a not necessarily evil undead kind of series of ideas about how to look at undead. If you've got necromancy, how would a, a culture maybe view that and maybe make use of it? And then the big project after that was, speaking of factions, uh, 76 factions based on each multi-class pair in D&D 5e. And that was quite an undertaking. <laughs> and when you were on last, that's what we spent most of our time talking about. Yeah. Yes, yes. I was knee-deep in that at that time. In keeping with the neoclassical flair that I've been in for basically my whole life, I would say a Herculean task, as it were. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's not talk too much about that one because I have questions. <laughs> so let's carry on. Sure, so, sure. Yeah, yeah. You feel free uh, to talk about it, Adam. We don't yeah, want to yeah, speak no, in. Yeah, 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 fair enough. I don't want to hold um, you just take my question. It's, so, When I was planning ahead towards the project that would come after these factions had been finished for the blog, I thought I've written 76 of these factions as basically like a setting. <laughs> but I also wanted to get away from D&D specific stuff. Among other things, I wrote a kind of, I call it a setting prompt generator for myself. It's pretty much a bunch of random tables to give you different elements of environment and culture and elements that you might need for start getting the ball rolling on creating a setting for yourself, kind of fantasy setting. So the current series on the blog is a setting that makes use of the prompts generated from that, a setting called Mayar Zero, and I assume we'll be getting into that at least a little bit. Oh, for sure. <laughs> I guess without any further ado then, let us get to the question and answer phase. And so I mean, the gentleman dice to the ready, I'm breaking out my silicon fan roll dice again. They always do me well. Let's see if I can get up here. That's a 13 for me. 13 for 17. you? My dice have been failing me specifically all weekend. Yeah. Like, I have not been rolling for poop all weekend. You, you've been well, playing a lot of Star Trek, so that's why you're rolling also so many low numbers. Fair enough, but I did two D&D &D nights in a row, and as a player, I did okay in the first yeah. one, but as a GM, out of a three-and-a-half-hour session <laughs> and never rolled above an 11. Yeah. So enough Bro. of the preamble, my friend. What's Want to know the best thing about Monster of the Week as a <laughs> storyteller? I don't have to roll dice. Four. Know, yeah. <laughs> so, all right. It sounds like then for round one, at least, uh, Mr. Myers gets to go first. Crack it open, Mr. Myers. Head on. Well, Adam, I know you've been on the show before, and some form of or incarnation of this question was probably asked then, but it is something that comes out in most of our interviews. And even if some of our listeners may have heard it before, we've had a lot of new listeners since then. We like to talk about origin stories, because we know you've put out a lot of great work, and we've dug into that, and I've got more questions for you on it. But I'm hoping that you can expand a little bit for our audience on your origin story, where you come from in terms of your TTRPG experience, how the persona of the Dungeonator came to be, 
My first impulse was that you came out of Dr. Doofenshmirtz's lab- laboratory, but I'm pretty sure you didn't with all the other innators, right? Anybody else watch Phineas and Ferb with their kids? I believe the <laughs> so, phrase you're looking for is Dungeonator 4000. So if you could just talk to us about where you come from, how you come to role playing, what it means to you in your life, how much this hobby has impacted you. Yeah, for sure. I started, let me think. The first time I actually played a role-playing game, it was Pathfinder 1st Edition, and it would have been maybe a couple of years after I finished college, so maybe 2010-ish. So it's not something that I really personally grew up with. It was cool at the time, the game master I was playing with was in the middle of writing his own system. I have no idea. I've long since lost touch with him. He, I know he had developed it to a pretty advanced point, this science fiction. I guess it's something similar to Starfinder now that I think about it. I enjoyed the experience. I had no idea what was going on. I was basically just, hey, here's some dice. I'm going to roll it and then trust that these people are going to tell me what these (laughs) results mean. (laughs) Played a gnome bard. I'm a musician by trade, trying to be anyways. And I was like, of course, I'm going to play a bard. I don't care if they suck. (laughs) 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 It was a pretty entertaining experience. I didn't come back to it until a few years later, I ended up running fourth edition with some friends of mine. I really honestly don't remember how we got started on it. We played video games pretty frequently, a lot of Team Fortress 2 kind of stuff. And we started playing fourth edition. I homebrewed some things. We were expecting, hey, this will be like fun for a couple of weeks. And then two years later, <laughs> we're wrapping up this Titanic campaign. I love uh, that. I could almost picture that a la SpongeBob, two years later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we were in it for a while. Eventually, maybe I'll return to the, the setting that I ran for them. It was a pretty entertaining take. I don't know, Sword Coast plus Silent Hill kind of situation. Oh, Oh, that sounds intriguing. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And then there's a lot of board games in there as well. We just played whatever we could get our hands on. We got into the hobby pretty deeply for a few years, and we've been keeping up with it ever since. We've moved across country for a while and keeping up online. Currently, I'm running a Blades in the Dark game. Oh, I want to get on one of those. Yeah, it's it's very different. I've been finding it's not so much the rules that are makes the biggest difference as it is like the mindset you have to bring into the game and how you have to think very differently about what your character does and what your character wants and. And then as a player, like, how do you use those rules to bring that out effectively? So yeah, Blades in the Dark has been really entertaining. We've been at that for a, a couple of months. The blog itself started, I had just lost a teaching assistant job because of COVID, cutting into budgets everywhere. 
And I was like, I've got a lot of time. Why not? I've enjoyed writing pretty much forever. I started a writing club back in high school and things like that. Since my table seemed to really enjoy the stuff that I was making for them, I thought maybe random strangers on the internet will too. I started up the Twitter account at around the same time. The Dungeonator was basically... Now I remember actually, I the initial intent of the blog was to do like step-by-step creation of uh, dungeons and adventures. And that ended up being a little bit too involved because of map making <laughs> ended up being the really slow point. And I was like, oh no, this isn't going to work for a weekly blog. And then just switched over to writing lore stuff and world building elements. I have a couple ideas knocking around in my head for solo role-playing games and maybe writing up some rules for things along those lines. Actually, one other part of my blog that I just started is a playthrough of a, a solo role-playing game by Cesar, I think is how you say his name. It's a game called Midnight Melodies. I have a jazz player investigating unauthorized deaths <laughs> by mm. eldritch entities, things like that. Nice. Uh, it's been pretty fun. So I love it. And the best thing about origin stories, which is one of the reasons I like to ask them, is it's fun how different they always are, because everybody came into the hobby differently. But it's also incredibly intriguing and fun how much they all have in common. Most people have something along the lines of, we, th- we picked it up and we thought we'd give it a try. <laughs> Two years later. <laughs> That's in their story somewhere. It happens to yeah. all of us. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You know, and it's it's interesting to me hearing how you describe Blades in the Dark. And maybe it's just because I was having this conversation on a server on Discord earlier about the Burning Wheel, the game The Burning Wheel. And they were saying basically the same thing, that the Burning Wheel, because of how collaborative the the Burning Wheel is, and, and anybody that's read our book on collaborative world building, the fingerprints of the Burning Wheel are all over that book. So it's, it's basically a guide for people that are not used to collaborative world building to bringing collaborative world building into their game with a bunch of role tables and storyteller prompts and stuff like that. But Full name of that book being the Traveler's Guide to Collaborative World Building. Exactly. Yeah, it's a very creative title. Exactly. Yeah. Talking about the Burning Wheel and how that game is way less about the actual world or the story that's happening outside of the players. And that game is almost entirely about the individual players. What are their goals and how do they accomplish things? Like the whole the starter adventure in, in, uh, in the Burning Wheel, for example, is, is the party is off to go get this magical sword. And all of the players have different mo- it's pre-generated characters and all of them have their own motivations everything like that and they are encouraged to squabble among their party mates to go ahead and see who squabbles the best to get the sword that is and that sums up the burning wheel in a nutshell and so it sounds like blades in the dark which is a system that we've been fascinated with but haven't started yet sounds a lot very similar it has a, a really interesting it's at its heart i think it's i would call it a push your luck game kind of game yeah how far can you push your character before they break? And I think especially coming out of 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons, it's, I don't know, at least my table, they're pretty cagey and cautious about approaching threats and being careful, and and that does not work with Blades in the Dark. You have to be reckless and <laughs> you have to be driven and deliberately drive your 
character into danger in order for the game to really work. And and once we started to get into that mindset, it it started to take off. But I I do know the first couple of sessions, I was like, is this going to really work? This is tepid. But then we were like, oh, yeah, we're not playing heroes. We're playing rascals who (laughs) (laughs) uh, are going to do anything to get what they want. And uh, yeah, getting into that kind of mindset really gets that's when the game really started to cook for us <laughs> nice cool let me go ahead and dive into into my question here i appreciate that in your preamble you talked about what we were talking about the last time with the 76 factions that you put together with the combination of subclasses and you very neatly and politely i will say queued up my question by saying that once you wrote those 76 subclasses hey i've already written a setting what else can i go ahead and hang on this here and so i'm gonna Try not to botch the name of the setting. It's Mayer Zorosk, you said? Yeah, cool. Yeah, right. uh, excellent. There we go. Anybody that has anybody that has not listened to the episode where we talk about those 76 uh, subclass factions, you, go, you pause here, go listen to that episode, and then come back. Because I want to know what is the connection between that work and the work that you're doing now with Mayer Zorosk. Are those factions involved in the creation of Mayor Zorosk? Or what's the, what was the foundation of Mayor Zorosk, and what's their relation to, those others, to the, uh, the other work that you were doing? No relation whatsoever. Well, damn. Okay, then let's <laughs> just, just go. Okay. Well, fine then. So, so what is Mayor Zorosk then? So, if it's totally brand new, what is uh, what is Mayor Zorosk, and what's the foundation of that setting? Yeah, I see you uh, laughing over there, Lewinika. Yeah, the foundation. Like I said, I, I had some random tables that I set up for myself. Basically, it generates a, a bunch of different things: the general topology of an area the general climate, how big is the settlement, how well connected it is, different kinds of cultural values that might be really important to them, different kinds of industries or trades that they might be famed for or they might highly prize. There's this list of common fantasy tropes. So celestial cults or cults of the beast or the plant, are there guilds or nobles, just different uh, buckets that, or general descriptors that you can use. And then you start to connect all those dots and see how do all of these things, how can all of these things connect into its own unique web? Because it generates a fair number of data points. <laughs> I don't think you would right. ever really roll the same thing twice. I ended up also running a couple of Twitter polls. One of them I rolled, the setting has a celestial cult, so the stars or something up in the sky is really important to them. And I asked Twitter, hey, is it the sun? Is it the moon? Is it the stars? Or just as a total lark, is it the tides? Because like tides are connected. It's not celestial per se, but allied, we'll say. And by a wide margin, the tides won. (laughs) I started looking for ways to make the tides important to this setting. And one of the other big religious elements was uh, animal worship. And I I forget all of the different animals I put onto the pole for that one, but uh, whales came back. And that was totally serendipitous. That one I actually ran not on Twitter, but on over on uh, Dice Camp. And so completely different, no communication, tides and whales. That's perfect. I couldn't have asked for anything better, anything more serendipitous than that. And I just took that and 
dove into what would this mean if you have a religion that centralizes the tides for their worship and for their belief and started work working around with, I call it Aolam, the Church of Tides. And what would they believe if the tides were the most important thing, symbolic element of their, of their religious ideas? I also started tinkering around. I was like, well, if the tides are really important, then what does that mean for the world at large? And is there a way I can maybe amplify that? And the answer is yes, you can amplify that by adding more moons. <laughs> so there's a couple moons in the sky. I did a little bit of reading. I'd have to double check the author of this book, but there's a book. What if there were two moons? What if Earth had two moons? Real quick by Neil F. Commons. And he has a short chapter on what would happen if Earth picked up a second moon. And for us, the answer would be, it'd be bad. It'd be super bad news for us. Just like, you know, huge tidal waves, earthquakes, volcanic activity. There are some other odd things that I hadn't thought of, like night would not be dark. It would be twilight at best because there would be an extra light reflected from mm. the sun at night. So we wouldn't really have a true dark night anymore. And I was like, okay, for this world, the two moons that happened a long time ago, they're not in the midst of this huge Titanic upheaval and the planet has settled into its new rhythm after that has all blown over, I guess, the apocalypse. If you follow me on Twitter, you'll notice I say there are actually two-ish moons. <laughs> now I'll, I'll get into that eventually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hence, have plans. <laughs> hence, hence the joke we were telling back and forth about the three mooners, right? That's a... Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What are you talking about? There's no third moon. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Of course not. Yeah. I absolutely love that. I am actually familiar with Neil's work because mm. he was a cited source on several of the space and scientific YouTube channels that I I subscribe to and consistently watch. It's actually where I first heard the name. Uh, so while I have not read his work thoroughly, I am familiar with it and have read a few passages here or there. That's that's right in my bailiwick. How does that impact society? What does it right. do to people? The whole constant twilight like in the very northern latitudes and i think back to the robin williams movie where it was twilight the whole time and al pacino was trying to chase him is down it? robin williams was playing insomnia yeah. yes and, I was and trying that to whole concept and what that does to somebody who's not used to that all of those things oh good stuff really good yep. stuff i can think of some really cool modern era TRPGs sure. yeah. that can be set like that and just how people deal with those kinds of things and there's really cool stuff with how it will affect the environment too, which I know you're working on, which Absolutely. without trying to go too far into it, because this isn't actually my question, it's just my response. Back <laughs> to the Slog was one of my favorite blog articles that I read so far. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> reading about the region of the Slogsmare, which is a tidally flooding swampland. So sometimes it's deep and fully underwater, and then other times when it's dry, it's lower like a marsh and going into it and the detail you put into it down to, and I'm bringing this up because I spent a lot of time hiking in some swamps this summer while we were in Virginia beach, because Virginia beach, the whole area is basically a swamp that's been filled in. And so many of the trees grow up 
and these clusters of roots that come well above the ground and it's for flooding. So your creation of the stilt groves that have root balls like that that grow seven to 10 feet tall to rise above the, the tides in waters and just everything about the way you put that together was fascinating. I, I love the detail that you put into all of this stuff. And, and we were talking about world building on the, on the, on the show a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about kind of the difference between bottom-up and top-down creation, right? And this seems to me a brilliant example of top-down, because you started with the cosmology. How does the world work? What drives my universe? Why does my universe work this way? And then you go down into details such as the marshes and the swamps and what, what happens on the, the individual level. It's fantastic. Yeah. And having just spent about a week in the Dominican Republic, the resort that I was at had a little mini mangrove forest uh, swamp right in the middle of it. Like you could like on a couple of them early mornings, I got up and I did a walk around or whatever. And there was actually a fair amount of rain right before we got there. So there were several days where it was literally closed because the water was so high. Uh, but as it dried out throughout the time I was there, I saw what, what you talked about in your blogs, where you see these mangrove trees with these root balls that are elevated off the ground. It actually inspired a conversation I had with Josh, which our audiences and, and such will be seeing at some point in the future, where we talked about some various plant materials and some of the ways that that expresses itself in a fantasy setting. And so I was very inspired by just walking through that environment. Glenn talks about it all the time, how inspired he gets on his various hikes or whatever. Just yep, being in this other, from hikes. just literally being in this alien to me, even though my family's from the islands, but I've never been there before for the first time in my life, being in the, this island environment, just feeling some of that late morning air pressure because it was just dense, like the humidity, the, the weight of the air just felt a different kind of feel between 10 and 11 o'clock. But yet you literally had to go three or 400 feet out of that forest area, out of that more inland area, closer to the beach. And then all of a sudden, temperature regulated. It was comfortable. That humidity wasn't there. You always, you had this consistent breeze every day unless it was raining. It was pleasant anywhere within a certain number, a uh, certain couple of thousand feet from the beach. But once you got on the other side, because it went up a hill and then came down, once you got on the other side of that hill, it was, I'm in the jungle now. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's wonderful to hear and talk with a creator who actually pays attention to those things and does some of that research and say, okay, how does that affect the world? How do I do this? And secondarily, now that I have the feeling, I have this sense of it, where do I go with that? How does that yeah. impact the mechanics of a game that I'm, I'm about to work on? That kind of thing. I love that. Yeah. I know when I started writing this setting for the blog, I set some ground rules for myself. And one of them was that this would be a, a fantastically realistic environment. So there would be very fantastical elements, but I would try as hard as I could to ground it in what would probably or what could feasibly happen with the kind of world setup that I was creating. And just maybe slight tangent, I know sometimes I will go online and ask a question like, hey, how might this work if these things were real? Can these orbits happen, for example? I, I think was one of the things that I was really unsure about for like, how would a two moon system work? Right. How do they um, not run into each other one day? 
Yeah, exactly. And I know the three body problems tricky. I asked about it online, like how can these, how can this be possible? Are there stable systems? And inevitably somebody will come back and be like, Hey, it's your world. You can make it do whatever. And I'm like, yes, but also no. <laughs> but that's not helpful. <laughs> yeah. I get um, that. I just want it to sound right. Yeah, yeah, that, that yeah. wasn't the stated goal of the question. <laughs> yeah. And it's something I've given a lot of thought to, like, how do you maintain the uh, suspension of disbelief for your audience? And I'm starting to think it's not so much, is it realistic as it is it internally consistent? If you start setting up, this is how this world works that you have two moons and one of them goes around the equator and the other one is vertical over the poles. Is that possible? I have no idea. But if you establish that, then you want to be responsible to that fact throughout the rest of your writing and to how that might affect the setting and how people think about the moons, right? As soon as you start laying some things out to be true, then you do have to like like lar uh, a logic starts to kick in and people will sense when stuff steps outside of them. And that's how I've been approaching this anyways. Like, So I'm going to stay right on this topic because I actually had a third follow-up, but I'm going to actually make it my first question because I actually don't believe either of my other two questions are even remotely going to be snaked. So I think I'm <laughs> safe tonight. And famous if I last am, words. Yeah, famous last words. But if you guys snake me, kudos to you because I think I got a unique question for you. But my first question is basically talking about something that you were doing that you just spoke about, like crowdsourcing your world building. To me, that is both – inspired and brave as you were saying it i'm like wow that sounds so cool how do i factor that in somehow and then i'm like oh my god how do i factor that in somehow do i want you know? to yeah <laughs> so i think that's awesome but it does leave me with a question just hearing about the way your world is built and what you've done. I'm going to ask a question. I think I might know the answer, but I really just want to hear it said out loud so the audience has the answer as well. Is that system of world building, are those tables available for gamers to purchase or pick up? And if so, please tell our audience where they can do that. At the moment, they're not available. Like I said, this is a personal test to see does the proof of concept does this even work so far i'm finding for myself the answer seems to be a resounding yes i am planning on publishing it i think the way that i laid out some of the tables i had some first-hand experience learning about probability <laughs> and that maybe some of the odds weren't as even as I thought they were when you get three dice involved. <laughs> and uh, some curious things start to happen when you yeah. have... Talk about a three-body problem, yeah. It's like... Yeah, yeah. Some of the tables I'm going to have to just rework because for this type of setup, I'd rather have things be even odds. Right. So some of them I was noticing like, oh, this is actually significantly more rare the way things were set up. But yes, I am planning on publishing it on Ko-Fi, maybe get it over on Drive-Thru RPG or something like that. And 
I don't have a planned release date for it, but I'm thinking I'll be in Merzorotsk for another few months at least. So sometime around when I'm wrapping that up, I'll try to make sure I time it with releasing this as well. Awesome. I'm very glad to hear that you're thinking about publishing it, because as soon as I read that you were writing tables and developing a prompt generator for world building, which is a big topic, and it's a large, that, that's a large nut to crack. I was like, ooh, I want to play with it. So I love that you are. And then uh, my follow-up question is to be that direct guy who says, can we play with it? <laughs> uh, because if you're developing it and you need any feedback, we'd be happy to we, we fiddle have, around with it a little bit with our own worlds, absolutely. try some prompts, see how it helps us develop some stuff, and let you know what we think. We have a Send good deal way. of experience with playtesting, not mm -hmm. just for our own stuff, but playtesting uh, with uh, other games as well. We'd ha be happy to give it a run, and when it's release time, give us a little heads up. We'll have you back on, so it yeah. won't be as far away as the last time, but yeah. we'll get you back <laughs> on to talk about it. it, it yeah, yeah, please, you let us know how we can help support you on this project, because we love the stuff that you do, so we would love to go ahead and do, uh, do more of it with you. We have a lot of forever GMs, and mm. many of which love building their own worlds. And a lot of folks who have been players long enough that they have that bug and they want to get into GMs. So yeah. having a tool to make that process easier because they've been playing with us and folks like us long enough that we're playing in uh, the box world is not what they mm. want to do either. Right. Right? right? Having a tool to make that process that we've all done through trial, error, failure and trial error and failure and modicum of success trial error failure full success <laughs> if we can have a way to circumvent get at least to the uh, to the middle of that area to the end of that area i think that would be really hot and i think there's just a ton of people within the tabletop journeys community and abroad that would just love to hear more yeah. about it sure yeah that'd be great here at tabletop journeys we've leveled up our game and we're prepared to make your next role legendary We've just started a partnership with FanRoll Dice, and they have over 300 product options to choose from. Gemstone, Metal, New Liquid Core Dice, and so much more. Better yet, listeners to the Tabletop Journeys podcast can get 10% off on their orders when they follow the link below and use discount code PODCAST10. A portion of these purchases come back to us, and this is a great way for you to help support the show. Gents, up to round two, fan roll dice to the ready here. Let's see what happens. Give me the win. No whammies. Nineteen. Sixteen for me. Ten. At least you're in double digits this time, Luke. All right, Glenn, you get first question again. How about it? So, Adam, one of the other things I was really intrigued by when reading the articles that you've put out so far on creating Mayor Zorotsk is the way that you're trying to create non-evil necromancy, which a number of people have, have, have given a go occasionally, but it's not something you ever hear a whole lot about. And it's one of the things that I can I think could really make at least the particular that particular sector segment of your world unique and a potential draw for folks. So uh, my question is, could you tell us about non-evil necromancy and the way that you've broken it down into both the profane and sacred versions in your article, Bring Out Your Dead, which was a fantastic blog article. 
title, by the way. <laughs> and uh, the keeper, and, and specifically though, the keepers of the holy gates and how they're using necromancy to further their own ends and the the concept of how many souls there are was in in their theories was just fascinating so as opposed yeah. to me talking about it could you talk to our listeners about it because i think we've got a number that'll think that part's really really interesting and how it factors into the world and how the rest of the world reacts to it because mm-hmm. you got to know that you got to figure that not everybody's going to be on board no absolutely so one of the as yet yet to be settled questions on my mind from this world building. Rotsk is not the entirety of the world. It's the it's a peninsula that's part of a larger planet. And one of the questions I haven't quite answered for myself is how exactly does the afterlife work? Um, so far I've been proceeding with the assumption that the gods are real, souls are real, and yet people still don't really know how it works. The way it's been written would be as if they were, the religions were religions that we might be more familiar with, and they have their intuitions about how they think the afterlife must work based on their beliefs. The the Church of Tides, Aulam, their central belief is a cycle of reincarnation, and there's a transmigration of souls. Everything came from the ocean. Eventually, everything will return to the ocean. In between those two points, souls of people and animals cycle when you die, the soul returns to the sea, and eventually it'll come wander back some way or another and find life again. And Hinduism, Buddhism kind of thing. They I like that a probably, lot. Yeah, probably with an assumption like how you lived will determine, are you going to be born a human or, or are you going to be born into a, an ant body or something? But because people don't actually know how it works, there are other people who have other ideas. And among them are the keepers of the holy gate. Their idea is you die, the soul leaves, and there is an afterlife that it's supposed to go to. And really this whole reincarnation business, life kind of sucks. Why would you want to come back? (laughs) And on top of that, if you are a bad person, why would we want them to come back? Right. So they're not on board with reincarnation as a fundamental belief, and they have philosophical reasons for why they oppose this. Their belief is that there's a, how would I put it? What was that stuff in Final Fantasy VII? Like the Earth had its own like energy thing. (laughs) <laughs> the the Mako that was being drawn from the Earth by Shinra Corporation for powering everything. Yeah, like that. There, There's a finite resource. Souls exist, but there's only so many of them. And they have this problem that they've noticed. If that's true, why, are, why is the population growing? <laughs> and this is led to some kind of apocalyptic thinking on their end. Eventually, this soul stuff's going to run out. So we need to stop this whole process. Currently, there 
is a group of the keepers who have decided that the best way to try and stop the reincarnation cycle, if that's what's feeding into this, then let's just make sure that the when the person dies, their body doesn't go away. And so they'll go out of their way to find corpses and animate them with the intent of preventing whatever souls are returning through reincarnation because they're supposed to be going somewhere else. They don't know why the souls are returning, but maybe this will work, right? If their body is still here, then they're not really dead, right? They're trying to find like a, a cosmic loophole to try and keep this, these souls from coming back. Is that at all how it works? I don't really know in, in a certain sense. I'm not really sure that I need to answer that question. I think that I, I intend to publish this as a supplement for game masters to use as uh, kind of a, a setting for their own home tables. I fully expect them to just Frankenstein everything anyways. But <clears throat> I think that I intend for there to be unanswered questions in the supplement so that the GM can answer them to their own satisfaction. Maybe the reincarnation cycle is siphoning off some finite resources of soul stuff, and they want to tell a game where the keepers are trying to fight the good fight, and maybe they don't intend for any of this to happen themselves. Maybe they're actually actively causing it and causing a problem. They can create their own story and set up the, the major players as different sides of whatever conflicts that they would that they would like. <laughs> the question of not necessarily evil necromancy is, I think, hard. In particular, when you're reanimating corpses, there are some very strong questions that you might have regarding bodily autonomy. I think a lot of our kind of conceptualization of the undead comes from also our own uncertainty about like what happens after death. And if there are souls, man, what would you have to do to actually communicate with them? Seems pretty nasty business. I think that if you're writing a world in which necromancy is a given, it exists, people know it exists, and people can use it and leverage it. Would they have the same attitudes towards what a corpse is as we do? No, probably not, right? So there, I think, would be reasons why culturally, at least, people might not have any problem with the idea of reanimating a corpse. If you've got necromancy around, okay, we can do that. But then there are other situations like, what about the soul that was attached to that corpse? If it's like in an afterlife, it's a, if it's already moved on and there's just like this husk basically that's remaining, then that's one thing. If somehow in the process of animating this corpse, you have to stuff that soul back in that body, that's a completely <laughs> different thing. <laughs> there are, I think, some world-building questions that you would have to answer in addition to just the cultural assumptions. And I know that that gets into some pretty heady territory because obviously there are cultural norms that are just 
wrong or evil when you really start to think about all the things that are involved with it. Right. Um, but the people or, of that society, they won't seem that way. Yeah, exactly. Is it, it, there's a sort of relativistic element to it. But yeah, I, I also think that there there are other, you get outside of it, there's another view of it. Now you have to account for that side of the relativity. How do you navigate that kind of those points of view? Yeah, I, that's why I always have included the not necessarily part. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think you hit it right on the head. There are some questions that you want to leave for the individual table because every table is different. Every group is slightly different, even if it's the same GM. Each group that they play with might be slightly different. So there are some that might be perfectly willing to get into some of those headier topics that you mentioned and others that are like, man, I just want to throw dice and clobber stuff. (laughs) So you have to things in a way when you're providing for a mass audience that allows the table to move nimbly, knowing that if you go too heavy in one direction or another, you may alienate one or the other. So you, there's a needle to be threaded there. And I like the fact that you're considering that in, in how you approach yeah. the writing. And you know that there are some questions you're going to answer. There are some questions that you may not choose to answer, but you have a definitive reason as to why. Yeah. Like the closest that I ever got to answering this question about is necromancy good or evil was making it somewhat neutral, right? Make, making mm-hmm. it like it's observed, it's a thing. We're not going to put a value judgment on it because people do it for their own reasons. And that's a, that's basically as close as I ever got to like squaring that circle. Can I just say, I love the depth with which you approach all of these topics. The thoughts that you have put into this go way beyond the thoughts that I ever put into solving this problem. I'm, I'm in awe to the depth that uh, that you have you've approached this. In my own world building, I've tended to avoid it because yeah. I wasn't sure. My Land of 18 Seas campaign, homebrew campaign, started as a game for me, my buddy, and all of our kids plus a couple extra people. So the idea was we were not getting into that territory with our kids who were 11, 11, and 13. At the yeah, time, absolutely. Right? Right. That was yeah. just not happening. So it was never part of the original makeup. Now that most of those kids are 17 and or over 18, and the group is filled with much more adults closer to my age than their age, even though the kids are still, the two younger kids are still part of it. We get a little closer to those topics, but I've still never really addressed that issue. It's never been a major touchstone for any culture. So my way of handling that question is, it just never became a big thing. So when right. it when people came across it, it was, there is a bad guy who does this thing, we didn't talk about the thing. We talked about the individual who did the thing. Right. And right. that way you avoid the greater question as to how it could be perceived or how it culturally is. Right. right. And we just did it. But we did have a few instances where people came in touch with isolated communities of, say, lizard folk. And if you do some of the reading, even in 5e, which is, uh, I think, a much higher and more elevated process for them, their attachment to uh, – the nearly departed or recently departed is vastly different than would be culturally acceptable amongst most uh, 
Western societies. So I think there's ways and, and games where you talk about it and games where you don't. I also want to mention, as you were talking about the concept of reincarnation, what immediately came to my mind, because I'm a big fan of Babylon 5, is the Mimbari and their whole system. And I immediately was thinking about Valen and how he handled and how the Vorlon interacted with that. It really gave me that feeling. As I say that, I think about the types of things we hear J. Michael Straczynski and the way he approached that series and the types of things that you're talking about. And I get the same kind of vibes. Like it's mm-hmm. all about how do these things interact and is it internally consistent? It was yeah. very big for him. It is very big for you. And it is something that world builders just really need to grab onto. Yep. It is less about the thing and more about the consistency of all of the things. Yeah. Part of the reason I latched onto that one is because in my world, the land, uh, it's not the land, it's just in my world, the boiling seas, I've been toying with, because it's a archipelago of islands, I've been toying with a barbarian tribe that has necromancy and core family like at its deepest part and they do ritualized necromancy so their family mm. members never leave them so grandpa yeah. still that they bind part of his spirit in it so for a while he's still cognizant too but then so on their island there are a bunch of wandering undead because at a certain point their mental faculties break down mm, I really sure. liked what you brought to my mind as i was yeah, reading yeah. the article for ways i could go with it the other part of the article the the kind of profane necromancy. There are devils in Merzorotsk hanging around the region. A couple of them are pretty actively using corpses and souls to their own exploitative ends. As devils um, do. Yeah. As, as, um, so yeah, I think that when I start putting this together, there's a lot of moral gray, but there's definitely a line in there, and the, the devils are on the other side of it. There can be gray, but also there can be black and white. Right. <laughs> All of this kind of feeds really neatly into my question, actually, which is great, because the question that I had, again, this is spawned off of something that you'd said uh, the last time around, and hopefully this question will be more successful than my first one was on face value. Um you had made a comment about internal consistency, and you said it again here when we were talking about how once you've made decisions, uh, making sure that later uh, incarnations uh, respect those earlier decisions that you've made. I guess what I wanted to ask was, A, and they, they, I can see multiple answers here, so I'm going to give you multiple paths, and you, you pick the one that uh, that is most appropriate. Um the first bit would be, have there been any moments as you're writing later chapters that you're like, oh, man, I really painted myself into a corner here with this one. How do I tactfully wind that back or modify it in such a way that I can go ahead and actually get get out of this particular chapter when I need to? Or the other side of that is that, did you do some sort of planning superstructure ahead of time to make sure that as you're writing these individual chapters that you still had the backbone to hang off of so you could go a little bit you could go a little far afield on one side of it but you still had that backbone to hang on to and so you knew that there was an internal logic and an internal consistency even if individual pieces got a little wackadoo i think for the blog part of the reason it exists for me is to help illuminate the writing process itself so as I'm writing, it's not just about, oh, here's upcoming content that you can expect to see when I finally publish this thing. It here's my thought process for why I'm making these choices. And here are maybe some things that you might want to consider if you're writing your own stuff. I'm not like a writing professor or anything, but I think it's always useful to 
share and listen to how other people approach the problem of writing. And kind of part of that is just being open about revision is a thing, (laughs) right? Very likely going to change. And in fact, the landscape as a whole changed a couple of times, even pretty early on from, oh, I rolled the, the area is pretty hilly. But then when I brought in the tides and the two moons and the fact that there are going to be these super t- super high tides, super low tides, I was like, that's probably going to make some pretty, pretty big swamps, right? Yeah. Along the coast is not going to look at all what we think of as a coast, especially right. if you have softer soil. And then another part of that I just didn't even know until I started reading was if you've got two moons in the sky, the tectonic activity is going to be greater. The gravitational forces are going to be pulling on the plates harder, right? So you'll have bigger earthquakes, you'll have more volcanoes, more geothermal stuff going on. And so what had started in the beginning as like, hills, temperate climate sounds, I don't know, like the Shire or something, yeah. <laughs> like not the Shire anymore at all, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. These are some pretty gnarly hills that are getting pushed up by the earthquakes and or maybe even pulled by the moon's gravity. Yeah. There's this big lowland swamp area, so very stark altitude changes. As you say in the article, the hills are alive, which I, I love your article titles, by the way. That's We could do a whole entire show about the humor that's in this, but that's a separate thing. But big boulderous hills, so yeah, kind of yeah. like that, like big dramatic kind of rugged, no no mild slopes here. That's no, <laughs> no, no, yeah. Big so. trucks of land, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> huge tracts of land. <laughs> That's exactly one castle. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Somewhat related to this, again, mild tangent. I know that, oh, what's that logical fallacy of humanizing nature or projecting emotional qualities onto nature? Like, I get that as an emotional fallacy. But when you're writing fiction, the the environment has an enormous effect on how things will feel. I started to notice, oh, there's some really dramatic differences and just in the landscape itself. And, uh, oh, you can probably hear my dog. No worries. <laughs> I say it all the time. We are a pet-friendly podcast, so absolutely, yeah, yeah. Just, we'll accept just, it. So as I noticed, oh, this is some pretty turbulent stuff. The tides are very strong. The currents are really challenging to navigate. And that really did start to influence like how the culture developed and how the elements of the people and their conflicts started to um, arise as well. So there's, I try not to be like super beat you over the head with, with it, but there are definite parallels between how the Zorotskian society kind of works and the landscape around them. Some stuff is getting mirrored that way. Yeah. Fascinating. All right, Mr. Miller, uh, I think you have got our last question for this evening. And because you said you got two unique questions, why don't we let you have the Patreon-exclusive question also this week? So Ooh, you pick one excellent. of your questions for the show, and then you, we'll have you do the Patreon-exclusive, too. I'm going to go with the regular question first, and then I'll bust into the Patreon-exclusive question. Um, speaking about your 
previous setting, you mentioned the, the one that you cut your teeth on that you first started working was a mix of the Sword Coast slash Silent Hill. Love that feel. I actually feel that. I've actually only seen elements or portions of Silent Hill. It's not one of those horror movies I made it through, by the way. But I've seen enough of it to know how terrifying I feel about that whole concept and how creepy it is. So I absolutely get that. But I get the sense that plus the rest of our conversation regarding the profane and the sacred necromancy, I have this sense that there's a bit of horror slash horror thriller adjacent theme going on in your work and i was hoping you could end the night for regular listeners and bring us as the penultimate kind of response for the patreons tell us about your inspirations how that informs the thematic directions you have gone and the thematic directions you're planning on continuing forward with so when i was a kid i had this sort of I think we can all maybe sympathize with this, that sort of repulsive fascination with horror. I remember going to Blockbuster and walking up and down the horror aisles and seeing The Blob or Pinhead and all those covers. And I could never really, as a kid, get into horror myself. It was like way too much. And some of that, my dad likes to recount finding me one day as I guess a five-year-old just sitting in a couch staring at a corner of the room. Hey, Adam, what are you looking at? And apparently I just was like, monsters. (laughs) 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 Oh, I guess the monstrous and the horrifying has always been there. Although it wasn't until much more recently like even past 10 years recently that I really started diving into horror as a genre. Although I guess now I think of that, that's not entirely true. I would watch like horror YouTube videos for like horror games. Oh, I can't do it myself, but maybe if I watch it with somebody else playing, <laughs> I'll be able to make it through. I think in retrospect, the the horrifying and the monstrous, ah, man, it's just part of the world. It's a way of making certain things about what is traumatic about life, at least a little bit approach, right? It helps put a mask on some of the truly horrifying things that happen in life. And you go to a movie and Pinhead and yeah, that's scary, but not like the kinds of things that Pinhead as a symbol is pointing towards. You know what I mean? It helps as scary as something like a horror movie is, it actually still helps put a barrier between us and what the symbols are trying to signify. So that's one reason that horror creeps in philosophically, I think, is just like parts of life are just horrifying. You can't really get away from that. And also just on a sort of a personal note, I grew up in a pretty fairly privileged position, Katy, Texas, when it was still new, middle class, pretty safe environment at that time. And part of me is like, the least I can do is watch some horror movies. (laughs) 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 and swallow that discomfort with horror stories and just get into it and that has actually helped me like digest stuff in the news 
better that I would have had a harder time approaching or stuff reading in history that's pretty, pretty grotesque parts of human history. Oh, okay. These kind of horror stories helped build some stepping stones to approach that and oddly enough, a more healthy way. <laughs> I absolutely concurred. I think Josh and I had a conversation, if not earlier today, it might have been a day or so ago, where we talked about the cathartic nature of certain kinds of music. Of sadness, uh, yeah. Sadness. Yeah. And we've t- Josh and I have talked at length about with my issues and my it combined with my fascination with things that are horror. I love the process of horror writing. I mm-hmm. love many horror authors, though there are very few that I can read or watch fully, and I tend sure. to bring other people along. So I read very little of it because somehow or another reading it is so visceral that it's more than I tend to process. There was a long time between when I first read Carrie, rather Christine, And when I ever got anywhere near that type of car again, it was a challenge (laughs) because I read that was one of the ones I read long before I watched it and watching it was bad enough, but I happened to read it. The fact that the lead character, her name was Lee, even though it was the female in that character. And that was a nickname I used to go by that made that book even worse for me. Like it was like, okay, (laughs) the cars after me individually, that's a problem. Right. So I absolutely get that fascination. And I, I, I do a lot of the same thing. There's, I, touch it on it and many of the characters i play there's usually some element of that in a backstory somewhere or an event that they went through or what have you because that's always it's a part of me so i usually put it into parts of my characters absolutely feel that love your answer cool all right leonica how about dive into your patreon exclusive question now uh, for everybody else in the show we'll be right back Thank you very much for answering that. Of course, this is the Patreon-exclusive portion of the show. We're back. So for those who are not Patreons, now's your chance. Jump in. You'll be able to go back and get this last bit because it's a great answer to a a pretty cool question. And we'd love to have you join the Patreon. And it helps the show a bit. So everybody wins. Yeah. And of course, you can do that at www.patreon.com slash ttjourneys. Adam Eason. The Dungeonator, thank you very much for joining us again. For folks that want to learn more about you and the work that you're doing and interact with the blog entries for Mares of Rusk and the solo game and everything that you're doing, what's the best way for folks to find you? The Ko-Fi account is where I post everything. I am in the midst of trying to migrate over to a page of my own, but I'll put the link in the message here it's just kofi.com or ko hyphen fi.com slash t dungeonator you can also find me on twitter and mastodon blue sky and tumblr same handle t dungeonator people have asked me what the t means it means the <laughs> nice. Fair enough. That's one of the things uh, that I yeah. love most about you, man, is your sense of humor. It's so <laughs> wry. It's just brilliant. Yeah. yeah. So I think we all went to the same school of comedy is really what it boils down. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, let's take a let's see here. This is actually going to be our first show of 2024, if you can believe. It. It's gonna air on the very first Friday of 2024. Uh, Happy New Year. 
Happy, Happy New, New Year, Year. Happy New Year everyone. <laughs> uh, and starting next week uh, is actually going to be a little bit of a shift in focus for us here on the show. We're going to be uh, really focusing on indie creators and bringing them in to go ahead and run games this year. Um, and our very first one of 2024 is going to feature the the amazing, immaculate-tuned Al Spader, writer from Modifius, who's going to be coming on to go ahead and talk about his game, Sentience. Really looking forward to that. Anyway. Adam, thanks again so much for joining us. Really appreciate you taking the time here tonight. And uh, yeah, we'll talk to you again soon, I'm sure. We're really looking forward yeah. to see what else you have coming out. Yeah, thanks Absolutely. for having me. Appreciate it. It's been great talking with you again, Adam. I really appreciate the time. As Josh said, it's always fun talking with you and hearing about what you're doing and enriching my own feedback loop as to how I do things <laughs> and how I play and create. So awesome. uh, it's yeah. always wonderful. Thank you so yeah. very much. Great talking with you all, too. It's always fun. Awesome. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Hope you enjoyed tonight's episode. We'll talk to you again next week when we bring in Al Spader. So until then, everybody, have a good night. Good night, all, and happy birthday, future Lee Wanika. (laughs) Happy New Year. Later. Thank you for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. Join us at www.ttjourneys.com where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. You can also stay in touch by subscribing to our Twitter, Tumblr, or Instagram at TT Journeys, joining our Facebook group, Tabletop Journeys, or by sending an email directly to podcast at ttjourneys.com. Our full episodes come out every week on Friday, and every Tuesday features actual play and gameplay showcase episodes. Looking for early access? You can support the show and get episodes before everyone else at www.patreon.com forward slash TT Journeys. Check it out today and see all the awesome benefits we bring to our supporters. Lastly, if you're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, or Audible, you would really appreciate it if you would like and subscribe to the podcast on that platform. Thank you for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And we bid you fair tides, friends, for legends await.